Welcome to A Healthy Exchange, brought to you by Rural Health Pro's Grow, Connect, Thrive, Be Inspired initiative, which aims to help enhance the capability and well-being of the New South Wales health workforce, particularly in rural and remote areas. Before we start, we acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands of which we work and live. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. Dr Woods is a senior healthcare executive who's practised as a surgeon in Australia, Scotland and Hong Kong. He has worked in public and private settings and a diverse range of hospitals, including academic, private and regional centres. Recently, he practises a locum in Broken Hill. Dr Woods has been Medical Director and Executive Director of Medical Services for Cabrini Health, Chief Medical Officer of Barwon Health, and five years ago, he stepped in as Medical Director of the Northern Beaches Hospital during its initial foundation phase. Over the past several decades, Dr Woods has led and implemented major organisational change at various institutions around Australia and has extensive expertise in clinical governance and clinical research. Throughout his career, he has sought to encourage high levels of patient safety and high-quality clinical outcomes through positive, engaged medical workforces. Well, Dr Woods, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thanks very much and happy to be here. Firstly, with such an extensive background, what have been some of the common pressure points you see across the board when it comes to management and morale in healthcare organisations? I think the the pressure points throughout healthcare are pretty ubiquitous at the moment and would probably be familiar to people inside and outside of healthcare. Growing demand, limited resources, um, we're dealing with more complex patients, they're old, often frail, multiple comorbidities. And I think also, at times at least, people feel pressured by rising and sometimes unrealistic expectations of consumers. You've practised internationally and domestically. Do you think these experiences are similar in other countries or are they specific to the Australian medical? I think they're widely felt and I think if we look at what's happening in the NHS at the moment that they're probably at an extreme end of the spectrum where there's a real feeling of despair and you've got clinical staff out picketing, threatening and acting on strikes. So I think things are worse there. I think there are other systems where there's probably still higher morale, but problems are common um, across the sector, around the world, around the country. I think there's a general feeling of, of, of disconnection of staff from the system and and a feeling that they lack influence and autonomy. I think there's a rising level of cynicism on both sides from clinicians, doctors specifically, but it's broader than that, and management, a a cynicism about each other. It's my belief that high-functioning professionals, and doctors fall into that category, need to feel that their voices are heard and, and that they have the opportunity to do their job to the best of their ability. There's no doubt the systems in which we we all work are often frustrating and they do produce a sort of pervasive feeling of, of powerlessness. Medicine's by nature a stressful job. The stress of directly caring for a patient comes with the territory. It's, it's part of the job. 
I think what I'm seeing is this growing feeling of stress that comes from feeling accountable for something that that many doctors feel powerless to influence, feeling like they're somewhat pawns in the game. And and finally, perhaps is, there's often a lot of talk about money, but I think much of the time um, money becomes the focus because everything else feels to some doctors like they have no power to influence. But but that's also partly due to the mindset they bring to the problem, which is often and perhaps understandably adversarial. What do you think needs to change then? You've said in the past that doctors can be terrible negotiators and that they're trained to be uncompromising. Is that part of the, the, the problem? Yes, I think so. Um, I think doctors should endeavour to see healthcare from the perspective of the system as well as from their own perspective and that of their patients. We're trained to try and see a patient's problem from the patient's perspective. And there's value in looking at the system from the perspective of those trying to to run it. I think a lot of healthcare organisations have essentially given up on trying to engage meaningfully with doctors, just as doctors have given up on engaging with them and, and none of that's helpful. I think it stems from a lack of understanding that many doctors have about the systems in which they work. We're not really trained to understand them. We're trained in clinical practice. And there's a similar lack of understanding by many managers about what it is that the doctors are really seeking. And, and so it all gets simplified down to they're always whinging, they always want more of everything. And I think doctors too often bring problems, not solutions. What I meant about doctors being uncompromising it's both a strength and a weakness. So as a clinician, you're taught to be uncompromising in trying to get the best possible outcome for your patient. In everything else we do in life, we make compromises. In, in our private life, family life, relationships with friends, the cars we buy, the you know, holidays we take, we make compromises. But too often, I think, Doctors bring problems, bring demands, and if they don't get exactly the response that they want, they feel that they've lost and are not willing to accept that, well, maybe we'll meet you halfway for now. We've got finite resources, finite time, but let's see what we can do to try and move you closer to a resolution to the problems you're raising. But quite often doctors just see that as management said no. I understand it from both sides, but I think there's there's a level of there's a level of communication on both sides that would benefit from a more more mature approach, a more reasonable discourse, and an accept, acceptance of the many many competing priorities that healthcare has and that at times the compromise might be, we'll do it, but not now, or the compromise might be, we'll do part of it now and part of it later, or the compromise bit might be, let's pilot it and see if it works. So I think a spirit of compromise and mutual understanding would would help a lot. So I I mentioned in the introduction that you have sought to encourage high levels of patient safety and high quality clinical outcomes through positive, engaged medical workforces. 
how does that then translate when we have this rub of potentially management not quite understanding the grey that medical professionals, doctors, allied health work in? I think the language that's used uh, in communicating how healthcare organisations are performing is often unhelpful because it really doesn't resonate with clinical staff. When everything's reduced down to KPIs, metrics, it really takes away from the fact that, um, that there are patients and clinical outcomes at the end of it. At the upper end of organisations, my own experience through Safer Care Victoria, who I do some work with, is that we actively work in training boards and executives to remember that the organisational purpose of healthcare is to have accessible, high-quality, safe, patient-centred care. That's the only reason the organisation exists and all the other metrics that they are presented with, whether they're financial or operational, subservient to that. And I think it's really important when you're engaging with clinicians, and I don't just mean doctors there, to remember that the language that clinicians um, speak is the language about the welfare of their patients. And we're actually talking about the same thing, but if we talk about it in terms of safety, in terms of excellent clinical outcomes, in terms of great patient experience, then I think that just resonates much more with clinical staff than being presented with a, with a battery of, um, of KPIs. If we're going to get people to, to change, and we, we constantly need to change, we need to change the way we deliver care, we have to frame it in a way that in, engages the heart, engages the emotions, not just you're in the worst quartile for this KPI of access. That just does not resonate with anyone in healthcare. So I think, I think there's need on both sides to, to remember that that our patients, our consumers are at the centre and build that in, into the language that we use daily. So common language is important. I'm wondering, and you've mentioned that you are currently doing some work with boards and executives of some of these big um, health organisations to help with that piece. Whose responsibility do you think it is for helping doctors to understand that concept as well? I think it's a two-way street. I think healthcare organisations have to create the structures for doctors and consumers to have their voices heard. I mean, there's an irony here in that, in, a, in one sense, a lot of systems that function in healthcare are actually functioning around the needs of doctors. So some of the way that uh, clinical care is delivered the timing of ward rounds, the availability of doctors, the fact that the patient has to attend, you know, four different clinics instead of um, coming to one clinic and having the care brought to them is actually, in part at least, designed to suit doctors. So that's not helpful. Mm. So doctors need to look at it from the consumer's perspective, but 
hospitals, healthcare organisations need to also understand it from the doctor's perspective and bring them into the conversation. Doctors, on the other hand, need to be willing to do so. And I think that's one of the interesting things I've learned because, you know, early on, I was sort of culturally indoctrinated as a as a junior doctor to see management as the adversary. And that, that is so deeply entrenched on both sides. But um, having sort of serendipitously drifted into management, I can now see it from both sides. And it, I, I think it's surprisingly satisfying. And I think if doctors actually offered to help and could see that they did have the capacity to influence, you know, influencing systems takes time. It's, it's, it's a long game. It's not like completing an operation in 45 minutes and knowing, knowing you've fixed the appendis, appendicitis. You know, that's very, very satisfying. Changing a system <clears throat> to have patient-centred care in maternity might take years to really uh, work through all the intricacies of that. But it can be done and it's enormously satisfying. And if doctors aren't part of that conversation, then they shouldn't be too surprised if the system that's created doesn't really meet their expectations around clinical care and also the realities of them actually practicing within it. So I think both sides need to meet each other halfway. And I've seen those colleagues of mine who have made a change like I have, um, either partially or ultimately completely moving into management, it's surprisingly satisfying and I think would be a way of actually helping doctors feeling more engaged and feeling heard. And um, in my experience, um, healthcare organisations welcome it with open arms when when the approach is made in that how can we help sort of framing mm. rather than you got to do something you got to do this and you got to do it now or i'm out of here or you're not paying me enough to do this both sides need to to change how they interact yeah i think you've used the term before influence and not ultimatums yeah it's a subtle difference but a difference yeah i think Look, a lot of the world operates by policies, procedures, edicts. Healthcare is up to their eyeballs in them. When healthcare sees a problem, they try and solve it with another policy, memo, directive, business rule. Whilst there's a need for that, there's much less attention paid to trying to improve the culture, the level of engagement, the happiness of staff and I think a lot more could be achieved with that because Australian doctors by and large are fantastically well trained, fantastically competent. So we don't lack for knowledge. I think um, that the culture is often counterproductive and contributes to a mutual culture of, of disrespect which is corrosive to the very things that we're that, that we're here to achieve but as I also say at times to doctors you know respect's a bit like love you got to give it to get it mm -hmm. you can't just demand I don't get no respect 
start off by actually showing a bit of respect because often you'll find those people who are annoying you most are trying their damnedest to actually do do the job. A Healthy Exchange podcast is brought to you by Rural Health Pro with the support of the New South Wales Ministry of Health. If you care about keeping rural Australia healthy, then Rural Health Pro is your community. The Rural Health Pro platform connects health professionals with colleagues, scholarships, training and career opportunities to help them thrive. It's free and easy to join. Visit ruralhealthpro.org today. You led uh, the creation of the Barwon Southwest Public Unit in Victoria at the start of the COVID pandemic. What was your approach to leadership during that stressful period for everybody? And did that change your approach to organisational change going forward? Well, yes, I did lead it in the, in the sense that it came under my um, direct line management, as, as we like to say in, many, in management, but I can it would be doing a huge disservice to the rest of the colleagues in the, in the executive there to say that uh, that I was alone in leading it. COVID, COVID was an interesting experience for for everybody, and although it was hectic in a bizarre way, it was a lot of fun because we had a license to act, and we could do stuff in days and weeks that would take months or years or not be done at all. We had to go from vaccinating, jabbing an average of 10,000 arms per year to over 600,000 in the year. So I had to think differently, but we had that freedom to act. All of a sudden, we could go and hire the old Ford factory and set up an industrial facility to to have serried rows of, of people filing through seven days a week being jabbed. If we had to go through the normal processes to do that, we'd still be talking about it. So I think what we saw then is where there's where there's a clear and present danger, when, when there's the burning platform, in fact, people can change amazingly quickly. People everywhere just did amazing stuff. And it's such a shame that in the wash up, there's criticism and scrutiny of things that people got wrong. And whilst it's reasonable to go back and, and look at lessons learned, you've got to go back and put yourself in the shoes of those who are trying to make these decisions on the fly as new news came through, you know, three or four times a day. But actually leading it was relatively easy because everyone was on board. Nobody needed any persuasion. They knew what the goal was. Humans are pretty good at doing that. What we're not so good at doing is responding to gradual creeping threats. Climate change is a good example. So when, you know, when the frog is being boiled slowly, our natural disinclination to change, our fear of change comes to the fore and we resist it. And all of us do. So if you're talking about something like changing models of care in a hospital as it grows from individual doctors coming in when they can to see the patients assigned to them versus team-based care. That's a radical change, but it needs to happen when an organisation gets to a certain size. But typically, the organisation doesn't grow rapidly. It gradually expands and 
the point at which that change is necessary is often not really recognised. So I think what it emphasised to me was a lesson that, that I've had to learn repeatedly, which is before you try and implement change, you have to, have to, have to show the problem to those who you want to change. Mm. And you have to engage their heart and their emotions and see why this has to change. Because the challenge is that in management, often we see the problem, we see the solution, we jump straight to the solution create another policy edict (laughs) and everybody resents it and the whole thing falls over. So COVID was a great example that when the problem is clear, smart people have no difficulty in, in really changing the way they behave. So I think it's incumbent upon those of us in management to do a much better job at showing the problem, sharing the problem, engaging people in the solution, not forcing the solution onto them with, with another 45-page policy. Is there time, though, in, in the current hospital system? It's a busy place. Yeah, and that's, that's the problem. Everybody's con- so consumed with the work, it's very hard to carve out the time to change the work. We do need to change, and if I look back over the 40-plus years I've been in healthcare, there's massive changes have mm-hmm. occurred. The fact that the vast majority of our surgical patients come in on the day of admission would have been absolute anathema, heresy, Mm. uh, when when I was a a junior doctor. Uh, The fact that we're delivering sometimes quite high-level care in people's homes, you know, whether it's dialysis or uh, intravenous antibiotics, again, would have been heresy. So we can change, we do change, but we've got to get a bit smarter at at the way that we approach that and we've got to carve out some time. And the instinctive reaction is always to just say, we need more people, we need more money so that we can keep on doing more of what we're doing the way we're doing it. Whereas we need to just set aside a little bit of time somehow to actually say, how could we do this better? Because it, it is urgent, I mean, the way that we do things is manifest in the waiting lists, in the ambulance ramping, mm. and in the stress of, of, of healthcare workers. What part do you see local communities playing in this change? I think the voice of communities is imperative because ultimately they're our shareholders. I could digress a little bit to say that I think the way that often healthcare organisations engage with consumers is a bit tokenistic. Often there's consumer representative bodies which uh, comprise a very narrow segment of the community because they're the people who put up their hands to be community representatives. Mm. And we don't necessarily hear from the unemployed or the people from a non-English speaking background or um, other people with um, various types of diversity. So we need to hear from them, but we also need to have a role in changing community expectations about what hospitals are for, the challenges that we see with um, so many people coming to emergency departments who really did not 
need to come to a hospital and probably many of them didn't need to even see a doctor. That's also compounded by the challenges in general practice at the moment. We need to do better at changing community expectations about what healthcare can offer, particularly towards the end of life. There's a colossal burden of futile care, which is distressing to the patient, distressing to families, and an enormous burden on on the whole system. The relatively poor uptake in many communities of advanced care directives, people not willing to face up to the pretty clear reality that none of us are going to live forever and actually putting our mind to expressing our wishes in advance would go a huge way to addressing the problem of poor elderly folk being plucked out of their aged care facility to be taken to an by ambulance to to an emergency department at night and and the distress of families who are suddenly confronted with having to make decisions that they should have made um, in discussion with their loved ones long before that rather than trying to sort it out in the in the moment of crisis so i think we could do a lot more to try and and help our communities mm-hmm. understand what we can do, what we can't do, and where they should best seek care. And I guess it's balancing that need for the outcome in a sensitive and, and sensible way. And there's probably some additional training that needs to go along with that as well from for the doctors or nurses uh, and other healthcare professionals that, that might be treating a patient in that situation. Yeah. So, of course, whilst we talk about the healthcare system, it often doesn't feel like a system because we've got sometimes a bit of a parallel universe between primary care and hospital-based care and the the Commonwealth state divide on that is uh, unhelpful and probably not going to be solved in this podcast. But uh, general practitioners play an enormously important role in the healthcare system and hopefully can be front front and centre in having these uh, conversations uh, with patients. General practitioners need to be much better supported by the system and a lot of what's happening at the moment is, again, one of those boiling the frog crises where people inside the system, you know, have been saying for 20 years it's failing and only now really uh, are those who have control of the system and the funding for it, you know, suddenly realising they've got a crisis on their hands. I remember that when I was at Northern Beaches um, Hospital, which had a very troubled opening, but is now, I think, a very uh, fine hospital and, and uh, a fantastic resource for the community. Quite early on, we had a, a meeting with the general practitioners uh, in that community. And one of the subjects that we that we talked about was advanced care directives and how we could support them in um, supporting their patients, in supporting all parties in improving um, the uptake of those. There should be more of that. There should be more interaction between primary care, general practice and, and, and hospitals. Funnily enough, it happens much more in private land because um, there's a... Um, 
you know, a marketing aspect to it. So it, it works better there. Whereas I think the voice of general practitioners in um, in major healthcare organisations, you know, hospital-based organisations is often pretty limited. You're still practising and you've recently spent some time working in Broken Hill. Did that experience surprise you at all? So I'm not still practising clinically. Mm-hmm. I need to make that clear in case my medical indemnity insurer gets <laughs> gets very anxious. Um, but I've, I've actually worked in Broken Hill twice. Once was probably 25 years or so ago where I worked there as a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And that was at a time when they were having a crisis, as tends to happen in these uh, remote hospitals quite often, where they had no surgeons for a period of time. And at that stage, I was working at the Alfred in in Melbourne. And um, I think just through personal relationships, for a period of time, Alfred surgeons would rotate up to Broken Hill and be the on-site surgeon for a few weeks at a time. And I know that... um, we enjoyed it. I think we did a reasonable job. And um, it was an eye-opener for us, as working in remote areas often is. Suddenly you have to call on skills that you thought you'd never need again uh, when it's going to take four hours or more to, to transfer a patient. Going back all these years later in a management role, I see many of the same problems still occurring huge reliance and I'm not singling out Broken Hill because you could say it about many similar places around the country, huge reliance on locums, a revolving door of of transient staff. It's a bit ironic given that I was there as a locum to be criticising this, but there is something fundamentally broken in in the way that we manage uh, some of these remote sites. And the reality is they cannot, in my belief, be totally self-sustaining. They need to be partnered with more major healthcare organisations in the metro area. And I had discussions while I was there, both with management and the Clinical Excellence Commission, around the potential to do that more formally. And I was also involved in similar discussions in South Australia, where they're seeing exactly the same problem. So it's a question of, I think, thinking differently and trying to understand that to deliver the healthcare services that a local community needs, at a certain level, we need to be able to take the doctors to the patients. The reality is you're probably not going to get three or four really high quality surgeons to um, base themselves permanently in Broken Hill. But if the system could work more cohesively and um, particularly young surgeons, young ED physicians be given opportunities in the metro area that included some regular rotations to the rural area, then I think it would be to everyone's benefit. Unfortunately, there are also structural obstacles to that in the form of um, some of the enterprise agreements it differs from state to state. We can we can be a bit more innovative in Victoria in, in how we remunerate people remotely, much less so in um, New South Wales, South Australia. And what that does is you can't attract the sort of person I'm describing, so you end up paying 
double or more for a locum. So, you know, that's something that government really needs to, government and ministry, but, you know, ultimately that's a political decision that needs to um, be addressed urgently and hopefully there's a bit more urgency with the special commission that's just been launched into um, into the New South Wales healthcare system because I don't know that it will take a special commission to tell them, you know, how to solve the, the problem of pay, you know, trying to clamp down on expenses for doctors, but having the opposite effect by, in fact, increasing them through through driving the, the use of locums. But I'm probably digressing again. No, that's this is all good. And honestly, we could talk um, about the challenges um, and pressures on the system that um, a lot of our listeners are working in. But I did want to ask you before we let you go, if there is one key message that you could impart around helping to change the culture and, and influence and some of the topics that we've touched on today, what would that be? I think at every layer of the system, and it is a very, very complex system, which starts with politicians at the top and and all the way down to the person you know, putting the bandage on the patient at 2am in the morning in an urgent care centre. At all levels, I think there needs to be some more respect, some more listening, and some more avoidance of simplistic and directive solutions, because ultimately that's not the way to change, in my view. It needs to be a cultural change at every level, and we all play a part in that. So I come back to that that question of respect. You know, there's no good doctors railing that they get no respect from management and management railing that they get no respect from the ministry and so forth. Everybody's got to look to their own behaviours and try and make a difference. It's a team effort. Dr. Woods, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's been a really interesting discussion on leadership, staff morale and the change that we hope to see within our industry. Thanks so much for joining us on a healthy exchange. Thanks very much. And I would encourage that any doctor who feels that the system could be improved just has a think about maybe trying to help that improvement themselves. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Dr. Woods. A Healthy Exchange is produced by Rural Health Pro, funded by New South Wales Health. For more information, visit our website at ruralhealthpro.org forward slash s forward slash New South Wales Health. That's ruralhealthpro.org forward slash s forward slash New South Wales Health. In the meantime, please like, follow and share. Thanks for listening. The information provided in this podcast is of a general educational nature only. The views expressed are that of the presenters and not of New South Wales Health or Rural Health Pro.